You are listening to episode 120 of Reframe Your Life. Our guest today is Anne Buchma. Anne is an award-winning freelance journalist and the author of My Year of Living Spiritually, From Woo-Woo to Wonderful, One Woman's Secular Quest for a More Soulful Life. Anne is a leading expert on North America's 80 million strong spiritual but not religious demographic. She was the award-winning spiritual but secular columnist for the United Church Observer, now Broadview, for four years before writing her popular My Year of Living Spiritually blog for the magazine. Anne also leads workshops and gives presentations on topics relating to spirituality and writing, including how she left a fundamentalist religion. And if you've been listening to this podcast for very long, you'll know I'm going to want to get into that conversation with her. And the importance of finding community, how to live a more soulful life, and what it takes to tell a good story. She's also the founder of the six-minute memoir, Speed Storytelling for a Cause event, which features storytellers sharing tales on a common theme and has raised more than $45,000 for local charities in her hometown of Hamilton, Ontario. And I'm excited to have another Hamiltonian here today with me. She's the mother of two grown daughters and makes her home here where she's the active member of the First Unitarian Church. And we'll get into that conversation about her church membership as well. Patty, why don't you tell us a little bit about Anne's um, book and what we're gonna, where we're going to go today. Sounds great. Welcome, Anne Bookma. Anne was researching practices of the SBNR, spiritual but not religious demographic, when she felt her own spiritual flagging in 2017, and she embarked on an immersion into a year of spiritual living. While the book documents a diverse range of practices, from energy medicine to crystals, from forest bathing to holotropic breathwork, she also explores her estrangement from her family, her religious upbringing, and the shifting waters of her closest personal relationships, including that with her daughters and especially with her husband. Some of the experiences Anne writes about are unconventional, like a week at witch camp, taking magic mushrooms for the first time, a past life regression therapy session, hosting a death dinner, and selecting her own coffin. The reader's curiosity rises and falls with Anne's experiences, such as sensory, depriva sensory deprivation chambers, a chakra assessment with a shaman, and her radical decluttering. Woven into the book are conclusions drawn from research into the social trends Anne is selecting her experiences from, and she offers us summaries of the work of other authors, which adds spiritual resource to the long list of descriptors that can be applied to my year of living spiritually. It is a uniquely structured memoir, guidebook, personal travelogue, and experience journal. It is a seeker's memoir and one that we enjoyed immensely. Welcome, Anne Bookma, to Reframe Your Life. Thank you so much for having me, Sandy and Patty. Oh, it's great. It's our pleasure. And we've been starting with the COVID question, we call it, because these are such unusual times that we're living in. And I was thinking about this question in light of your work around spirituality. And there is a lot of fear and anxiety out there right now. And I was wondering from your work, what spirit, spiritual practices are you finding helpful to sustain you during these pandemic months? Mm -hmm. I think this is a very, obviously very unique time in history and a time for 
people who are suddenly confronted uh, in our isolation, you know, with ourselves. We are spending more time alone, uh, less time connecting in, you know, with friends at work and so on. And we're really having to sort of confront this isolation. And for some people, that's been a good thing. And for others, it's been really difficult. Um, for me, it's been interesting because I'm one of those people, and I write about this in my book, who's somewhat addicted to productivity. And I'm also a, a capital letter E extrovert <laughs> who gets her energy from being around people. So while I do have a, a small circle of people that I am in a bubble with, uh, some, you know, a couple of close friends for sure, uh, this has been a time to you know, be, try to become more comfortable with my own company, uh, which has always been a struggle for me because I've always enjoyed the company of others, you know, sometimes more than myself. Um, and I have recommitted to spiritual practices um, that I did in my book. Uh, um, you know, not all of them stuck, but for me, it's really about trying to start my day in the right way to get me in the right frame of mind. And I do have the luxury of time now to do that. I mean, I work from home. My work has um, slowed down somewhat uh, because of the industry. But, um, you know, I start my day uh, with 10 minutes of headspace still every morning meditating. I start with my gratitude app where I write down five things that I'm thankful for. The beautiful thing about this app is that it keeps a running tally. So I've been doing this for three and a half years. So there's thousands of things. Like if I'm having a bad day, I can go back and, and wow. look at all the things. And, you know, the gratitude is really, it's usually the small things, right? Um, and I do journal one page a day. And I find journaling helps me figure out myself and my thoughts and where I'm at. And, and nature is a great sustenance, you know, for, for us all. And that is one thing that is free to us right now. And I do live right on uh, the Bruce Trail. So I usually get myself outside for a bit or I do a bit of yoga on my back deck, but it's getting kind of cold. So I find when I start my days that way, um, things just go better. Things just go better. I am in the right frame of mind. And it occurred to me that, you know, uh, there is so much suffering that is happening. I have friends, um, you know, a friend of mine whose elderly mother died in her retirement home and she wasn't able to see her before she died. I mean, there's so much tragedy, especially among the elderly in nursing homes. Those are people are the hardest hit and their families. And a lot of midlife women have parents in that situation and it's tragic. <laughs> Um, however, for some, you know, what I find is interesting is that during COVID, we are going back to the simplest things that bring joy. Um, there's been a huge rise, obviously, in home cooking, um, baking. Everybody's suddenly a baker. Uh, we can still walk outside. We can still listen to music or learn to play an instrument. I fiddled a little bit on the ukulele. Uh, books are to me are, are you know the one of the greatest loves of my life and I'm sure this is true for your listeners so many things that are really simple are still really accessible and can still bring us joy but there definitely is an overwhelming anxiety among people who are suffering because when we are not in community with each other we do suffer and no matter how you know we can wear a mask we can be six feet away from someone um, people aren't getting the kind of hugs they used to get you know, so there is this mm. loss, and I think it's because we need each other, and COVID is forcing us to take a step back from each other. Mm. Oh, that mm. physical touch thing for sure. I uh, ran into a friend, and I forgot momentarily about 
the COVID thing. And I, I, my, my impulse was to hug her and I gave her a big hug and said, hi. And she said to me, um, that's the first hug I've had in six months. And yeah. I, I yeah. was just gobsmacked, you know, that, um, to think about that, but she's living on her own and, uh, hasn't had that kind of connection with anyone. And I think that is really, really challenging. For, mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and for people who uh, I've known of people who've gotten married during COVID, uh, I've known of, you know, the funerals. And I did have a very close friend of mine die three months ago. Uh, she was an animal rights activist. Her name was in the papers, Regan Russell. She was hit, yes. hit by yes. a, at a slaughterhouse. And we, we were very close. Um, and to begin mourning for a friend, you know, we were trying to plan a, a memorial service for her. And we've decided to put it off because the idea of being at a reception with all of her friends and loved ones there standing six feet apart and not being able to hold each other seems wrong. So, uh, you know, um, and, and, and among our group, we have, we have hugged <laughs> because when someone yes. is mourning, uh, you know, you put your mask on and you turn your face perhaps, but turn we face. desperately need each other in times of celebration and in times of sadness. And yes. uh, it's very difficult for people who are going through those kind of life rituals. On the other hand, for folks who are getting married, I've heard of a couple weddings that were going to be big blockbuster expensive affairs. And instead, they decided to get a group of 10 people together, get married outside and save a whole bunch of dough. And I think that's fabulous because <laughs> I think weddings are overrated and kind of stupid. <laughs> a big fancy wedding, you know. So um, it's making people change uh, their rituals. And I think that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. mm. so you haven't been singing at any weddings is that is that uh <laughs> no no um i'm a member of the first unitarian church of hamilton and i do speak to quite a number of uh, uh church services especially unitarian ones on zoom across the country actually and yeah. i'm invited to speak to one in the states and uh so i am gathering with my people i feel they're you know we can still connect and i've gotten better at technology but it's not the same but no. you know, human beings will find a way to connect some way, somehow, and social media is allowing us to do that. So I, I'm thankful for that. It steps in beautifully to that moment in your book where you realize that it isn't just the music that pulls choirs together. It's the singing in unison, isn't it? That there is, there's a magic. I, the same feeling that I think I get from singing in unison, I get from attending a parade or being part of a band or, you know, whether that's the, whatever that is. But um, I noticed that, in your moment where in the book where you say, you know, it isn't just the music that we're singing, it's the doing it in unison with others. And did that reoccur for you as an extrovert? Were you drawn to the spiritual experiences throughout the book that involved others as much as those that were solitary? Yeah, that's a good question. I just, you know, with the music, I, I've, you know, so many of us stop singing, right? Like we sing when we're children and yes. then self-conscious and then we stop singing, even though it's one of life's most joyful things. And uh, it's interesting, people in choirs or who sing in groups around a campfire, anything like that, studies show that it actually regulates your heartbeat and, and, and your heartbeats can kind of be in sync together. So there's this primal connection that music uh, can give to us. And especially when we listen to the music of our youth, you know, um, elderly people in nursing homes can't remember what they ate for breakfast, but they can remember every lyric to a song from 60 years ago. It imprints in our brain. Music is so essential to our experience. Um, so I did, as an extrovert, I did do a few group things. Um, you know, I joined several community choirs. I went on a syncation in Newfoundland. Um, I went to a witch camp and hung out with 40 witches. 
what else did I do that was a group effort? But most of it was kind of singular, actually. Uh, it was sort of me and a practitioner or me going to live in a treehouse for a few days or uh, going to Walden Pond on a pilgrimage. Um, I really was looking to become more comfortable with myself and I think, and know myself better. And sometimes we can't do that in groups, you know? Um, sometimes we need to sort of, um, you know, discover that on our own. So I did do quite a few singular experiences as well as, as some group ones. I was, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit because I don't, I have a background of um, being from a fundamentalist evangelical faith. In fact, my husband's a minister. And uh, so there's a, a whole conversation for another what time. Kind of, what kind of minister? What, which denomination? He is uh, a transitional pastor in the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, okay. which is kind of like a Baptist-ish kind of right. would be probably right. the closest thing. So uh, he does contract work now for them, but that was a big part of our life. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, a year of living spiritually, because I would probably identify more in that spiritual but not religious camp now. I don't um, go to church any longer. And I was thinking about how religion addresses a deep need we have for justice. And there's an aspect of it, and I think it's a big one right now in our world where there's a hunger to see justice, especially around sustain, systemic racism and this failure that we we've been seeing and along with that I think is this idea that the good guys are going to win in the end you know that's a big part of religion and you talk in your book about hell and some of the you know that that was one of the places where you started to separate from the faith that you had grown up with was in your beliefs around hell and I was thinking about how in the SBNR world is that how you say that SBNR Yes, spiritual but in our world. Yeah. It seems like karma is the new justice. You know, people always say karma's a bitch and karma this, karma that. Like it's just like, like that's sort of the the justice part of it to me. And I was wondering what you think about that. Is that just a new packaging of our longing for justice? It's the new hell is karma. Uh, you know, I've never really thought about it that way. I don't really believe in karma myself. Um, karma, I mean, why do children get cancer? I don't, you know, that's not, I don't, I don't ascribe to that at all. I think the universe is rather random um, and that we make our own meaning as much as we can, but there are random things that happen. It's, it's a mystery and I don't try to understand karma or heaven or hell or any of that. All we know for sure is what is the here and now? And, and I think, you know, I did grow up in a Dutch Reformed, Canadian Reformed church. Um, I had a loving family. It was a very restrictive upbringing, you know, church twice on Sunday, young people's on Fridays, catechism. We had to memorize the catechism. Uh, every Wednesday I went with other young people, private Christian school. The whole idea was to separate me from the culture and to, and to stay within our own bubble, which is what fundamentalist religions do because they don't want you to meet with other people or get an education because the more you see other people or get educated, you realize the fallacy of what you've been told. And so, um, you know, that really shaped me and formed me. Like I say, I had a loving family and they were brought up in that religion and I want to be respectful, but I just don't believe it. 
uh, myself. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was a very difficult uh, separation when I left the church when I was 20. You know, they threatened to excommunicate me. My family stopped talking to me. Um, and I had a really, it was, I was full of mental anguish because I love my family. Mm -hmm. And yet I just did not, we just did not agree on this. And it wasn't enough then to agree to disagree you know? And so I went on a church journey. I became, I went to the Presbyterian church. I ended up in the United church for about a decade. And then in my mid forties, I found the Unitarian church and, you know, talking about social justice, I do believe uh, that if religion is going to serve any purpose in the world is to bring people together, to have the comfort of community, to be seen and known, but also to make a positive difference. I think a lot of fundamentalist religions make a negative difference. They are anti-gay. They deny climate change. Uh, one third of Americans who are, you know, conservative Christians, they are the people who vote for Trump. Uh, so that is not the kind of religion I'm interested in. I was very happy to find the Unitarian uh, congregation in Hamilton. There's about 50 Unitarian congregations across Canada. This is a, um, a, an old religion started in the 1800s in, in America where, you know, there's always been a focus on social justice from uh, emancipation of women to uh, Black Lives Matter to prison reform. I mean, Unitarians have been at the forefront of every single social justice movement uh, in the world. And uh, I'm proud to be a Unitarian. And I also get the comfort of community without any of the dogma. Yes. You know, we don't have a Bible, right. we have a book of readings, uh, with wise words from various religious texts and prophets and poets and scientists. Um, so we learn from, uh, you know, all kinds of people and all kinds of traditions, but we don't, you know, pretend that we, there's only one way and we don't focus on heaven or hell or the afterlife. The focus is on the here and now and acknowledging that so much of it is a mystery. We, we don't know what comes after this. Nobody does. So acknowledge the lead, I'm curious about the leadership in a church like the Unitarian and, and mm. sort of the figure, the figurehead of the church. You know, um, we know the dogma is certainly part of the training of leaders in traditional churches or more traditional churches. How is the leader, the spiritual director, the head of the church determined in the Unitarian? Uh, well, we do have a theological, you know, a school, and um, we have traditional ministers who are paid and who are educated and in, in the Unitarian tradition. We don't have one, we don't have a pope or anything like that. We have a president of the uh, Unitarian uh, Association in Canada, and there's about a thousand congregations in the U.S., um, you know, a lot of famous people throughout history have been Unitarians as well. It's, 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 yes. a, um, yeah, it's just, I, I didn't even know about Unitarians when I, you know, was church shopping. And, and I even now when I tell people, <laughs> basically I'm an agnostic, I'd say. Uh, and when I tell people I go to church, they kind of look at me funny. You know, my liberal friends, it's like, really, you go to church? Uh, but I always want to say there's no crucifix on the wall. There's no set of commandments. You know, basically I go to improve myself, uh, to think yes. about the deeper questions of life. Uh, to be part of community and to, you know, get involved in the um, uh, social action initiatives that our particular church is involved in. And uh, that mm, made beautiful. all the difference in my life. Um, mm -hmm. Because what I had before was really, 
you know, I was told you must believe this or you're a bad person. Yes. And uh, many people are told that. One of the great pleasures of writing this book, uh, you know, the book tells the story of the 24 different spiritual practices I engaged in. But the, you know, the parallel story is about my family, about leaving faith, the damage it did in my personal life with my family, and, and what that journey was like. And one of the most rewarding things about publishing this book has been the number of people who have contacted me who were also raised in very fundamentalist religions and who have struggled because they mm. love their family. And often yes. they reject it, especially, and I will point them out, you know, Jehovah's Witness, um, Mormons, um, some of the more uh, right-wing uh, Protestant religions, and even from my own faith tradition, um, people have contacted me to say, you're the only one I know who left, because it's hard to leave. And the yes. reason it's hard to leave is because you lose your family and you lose your community. And what do human beings want more than anything is to belong. So studies show yes. that people will continue to go to a house of worship, even if they don't believe in the tenets of the faith, in order to not lose their community. So we're betraying yes. ourselves by doing that. And what happens yes. with that is um, that you don't end up with um, authentic community in a sense. You you know everybody's playing a a part, and they're it's a group think. They're fitting in. They're saying what they think they need to say to belong instead of saying where they really are. And it just kind of perpetuates that. So I think the community thing gets really tricky, and it is so. It is such a longing for us, as you're saying. And that's one I, of the challenges, uh, you know, just if I, if I might say, one of the challenges facing people who are spiritual but not religious is that they don't necessarily have that, you know, the church or the synagogue or the mosque is a building we can go to. It's there. Yes. You know, we can go. It's easy. One hour on Sunday or Saturday or Friday night or whenever it is we go to worship. Um, spiritual but not religious have to carve out their own rituals and traditions and communities. It takes a little bit more work than just showing up for an hour. Yes. So, and often defend them, right? There's always, there's a little right. bit of a defense in it. And I, I'm sure you both recall, you know, in early days, probably even when in census taking, I recall when being asked, you know, what religion are you? And having been raised in a Presbyterian church, I've said Presbyterian for the longest time and didn't realize that it held absolutely no value and meaning for me personally. But I remember those early days of defending and saying I'm spiritual, but not religious. And this may have been a lot more than 15 or 20 years ago, probably before my own very now 27 year old son before he was born. But I remember having to defend what that meant. And I celebrate the fact that now there's a lot less of defending that difference mm. because we're now part of a spiritual majority. And uh, I love that your book just flat out makes us all feel like we belong. And within that, believe whatever you do. And then in the same way that you characterize the Unitarian Church, I thought it was beautiful the way you said, not commandments, but rather guiding principles. And you talk about self-improvement rather than you know uh, aligning with the dogma. And I think that your, your book is in that way, uh, an exploration of belonging as well as finding oneself. And it's mm -hmm. interesting what you say about defending, because I think sometimes um, people who are SBNR can get defensive because they've been attacked. Yes. Uh, a well-known minister in the, in the U.S. who has said, you know, she wrote a, a, a popular blog post that became a book, you know, SBNR, stop boring me. And she, you know, claims that being SBNR is very trite and lightweight and there's not rigorous thinking involved unlike religious traditions. And um, I would argue the opposite. I think if you are seriously SBNR, you are going to go out on a journey of some kind to find out what works for you. 
uh, who are the people you want to be with? What are the kind of traditions that you want to embrace? What kind of rituals will you have in your life? Because rituals do make our lives meaningful. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting how um, that's considered, you know, and I use the word woo-woo in my book, you know, sort of to reclaim that word, you know, people will say that's so woo-woo, you know, she's into chakras or essential oils or witch camp or goes mm -hmm. to a singing retreat. That's so woo-woo in a very dismissive way. And I would argue that I think it's because a lot of women are following, you know, mostly it's mostly women who are yes. seminars, often women who are the spiritual directors of their family and and themselves. And so it's very, um, because women are doing it, it's woo-woo. How many things have we been taught as children, certainly myself, from the Bible, you know, the virgin birth. But, um, you know, is that not woo-woo? So what's woo-woo yes. here? Let's, let's not be dismissive of people who are trying to carve out unique practices for themselves uh, if it leads to some sort of growth. And in the end, the idea is hopefully it'll make us a better person so that we can make some kind of contribution in our existence here, which is the whole point, I think. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. You mentioned that there were 24 spiritual practices that you look at in the book. Mm -hmm. How did you decide? Did you did you write yes. the book after or before? Did you sit down and say, these are the practices I want to explore and this is sort of the year I'm going to map them out? Or did you go on that journey and then go back and write about it? Well, I, I'm, I am a journalist and I've written for the United Church Observer. They're one of the magazines I write for regularly. It's now called Broadview Magazine. Wonderful magazine that supports great journalism in Canada. I encourage people to get a subscription. Um, and so I had written, uh, I, I write features for them still. I just did finished a feature for them about midlife women and drinking. And the rise hmm. in drinking among midlife women, especially during COVID, um, so they yes. allowed me to do some really fascinating uh, pieces and I, uh, the editor said, let's look at the spiritual but not religious and what makes them tick. So I wrote a column for the magazine for four years called Spiritual But Secular in which I examined from a reporter's point of view, you know, the rise in secular pilgrimage or um, things like, you know, past life regression or... Um, going to a shaman, all kinds. I wrote four years worth of columns for them. And then that sort of came to an end. And I thought, you know, I would like to experience some of these things myself. How about I write a blog? So I wrote a biweekly blog for the magazine and delved into these things myself. And about 20% of my book is that blog. And then at the end of the year, I had enough content. And I thought I will weave this in with a story of me leaving fundamentalism. So, um, you know, I, how did I choose things? I chose what was, you know, fairly easy to do, accessible and affordable. Uh, I, I didn't go to a mountaintop in Bali, like, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert and eat, pray, love. I would have loved to have done that, you know, yep. do, do yoga on a mountaintop in Bali. But uh, I had a family and a, still, a career, you know, I was still doing some work, although I pulled back on my work a bit to write the book. So, yeah, so I did things like, um, you know, I observed what I considered my version of secular Lent, and I gave up booze for 40 days. I did all kinds of yoga, you know, from goat yoga to yoga on the edge of Niagara Falls. I experimented with solitude. I, I booked myself into a treehouse. I'll, I'll read a bit about that later, all by myself. I did go to Henry David Thoreau's iconic Walden Pond. Um, I went to the Women's March in Washington, you know, talk about it, yes. spiritual community, and that was incredible. 
uh, witch camp, you know, the magic mushrooms. I went on a forest therapy uh, walk with a, with a guide. I really examined the whole idea of death. I hosted death dinners with my friends where we talked about deaths that we've experienced, what we hope for for our own deaths, what our last wishes would be. I chose my own coffin. I went to a green burial to figure out, you know, is this where I want to be laid to rest? Um, I really cut back on, on social media and I went to a psychic village, Lilydale, and created a home altar. I went in a float tank. I mean, I did all kinds you of did a lot. Yes. I, I think I was 24. I learned how to read tarot. You know, I took a tarot workshop yes. and started reading tarot for my friends. I did a daily gratitude practice and I investigated Reiki, which I was always kind of suspicious about. Um, simplicity, you know, I purged my stuff. I took Marie Kondo's words to heart and I purged about a third of my possessions. Uh, and I got a tattoo at the end of the year. So I chose things that would, uh, would be of interest to me. And there's a slew of spiritual okay. practices that I didn't investigate. Uh, but I did things that sort of intrigued me and uh, that were affordable, mm. easy to do, easy for anyone to do. You know, my book, um, for anyone who reads it, you know, I hope it inspires them to try a couple of things. And I think it will, you know, so maybe a couple of interesting things. So yesterday I texted Sandy because I just knew we're so in sync when we get into reading these books and prep. And I said, so what's your death clock day? <laughs> so there's a moment in the book where you, you take us to the death clock and you, uh, I won't overplay this, of course, and give ink to something that doesn't need it. But I said to Sandy, what's your day? And she tells me her day. And then she said that her day was uh, 10 years before my day. I immediately am thinking all those people that will die before me and why am I going to live so long is what I thought. And then, of course, you realize that it's, it's an arbitrary algorithm and it has to do with how you place yourself on the positivity and what's your BMI. But I loved that you you took us into that space. I have a, a more than a fascination. I've studied death and bereavement as a on all sides, and I am a major Caitlin Dowdy fan. But uh, it's this was amazing that I'm going to see my 80th birthday or so. It told me, which surprised me greatly because I'm surprised that I just saw my 54th birthday. So talk to me about that and the other things that came up for us. Like I wanted a witch name. <laughs> you went to witch camp and, and then you, you went to the tree house and the tree house is really close to where I grew up. So I'm immediately trying to think, okay, who's got that property with a tree house on it, but which name you didn't have a witch name and you felt like a little bit of an outsider going into witch yes, camp without a yes. name. Well, so I'm wondering if before we leave the podcast, maybe we can explore our death days, our dates and which names, because I'm, yes. I'm looking forward to being what I assume is the most boring person in the world. I would like to have a witch name. So maybe you could give us one, Anne. I, I will. I'll think about that. Well, for three things. First of all, the, the treehouse timeout is, will be the reading that I do with you today. It's a couple of minutes. Okay. Um, and your question about death. Uh, death is, takes up a large chapter in my book. I wanted yes. to acquaint myself more with death. Uh, and uh, I did that. Well, deathclock.org, I think, is the website. You can Google it. Uh, you put in your name, your history, your, some of your health issues, and it does this random, yeah, it's an algorithm, and it says, you are going to die yeah. on April the 10th. 2037, you know, and, uh, you know, it's not accurate in any way. Uh, but it <laughs> does, it does, um, it does make you think like, you know, I'm going to yes. die, and you're going to die. And everyone listening to this is going to die. And we spend a lot of our lives avoiding that reality, or making yes. up stories, I think, of this magical heaven place where we're going to go, and it's all going to be better. I mean, 
I would love nothing more than for the idea of heaven to be true, where I can see everyone I love and everyone. Indeed. You know, I, I don't want to live for that. So what we have is the here and now, and we might have 30 years left. What are we going to do with them? Another, there yes. was another app I downloaded. I can't remember the name of it right now. And it sent me five messages a day on my phone with a saying about death. Right. And this is a yes. spirit of a Bhutanese tradition where, you know, if you think about your own death for five times a day, just stop and think, oh, I'm going to die. Going to die in thirty years. Going to yes. die in 20 years. It changes the nature of how you live your life. When you greet a friend or say goodbye to a friend, when you're aware of death, you will you will have a beautiful goodbye with that friend. When you fight with someone yes. or got angry, you know all these things. I think an awareness of death allows us to live a richer life. And um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I picked out my coffin. Like I, I also became yes. aware of green burials. I don't want to be in a vault, in a cement vault. I don't want my kids spending 10 grand on a mahogany coffin. I don't want to be incinerated either. It's terrible for the environment. And there's a big movement to natural burials where you're wrapped in a shroud and put in a hole somewhere. And there is a green yes. burial in Niagara Falls that I visited. And that's where I'd like to be laid to rest if there isn't one by the time I die in Hamilton. And I did find a wicker coffin that was really cute. It was $500. I took a picture of it. I told my daughter about it. And she's, you know, she's like, I don't want to talk about this. And I'm like, well, I want you to I know you to. what I would like. And I would actually like yes. a home burial and my body on the dining room table where we have spent yeah. thousands of hours having beautiful meals. And, you know, here's some people who could help you do that. I think we need to tell yes. our families what, what we want and what we would like to have. So... Um, you know, it's not like I think I'm not death obsessed or anything like that, but I do no. think we often deny yeah. the reality of death. And uh, when we, you know, for me, when I make big decisions in life, I often think, you know, how am I going to feel about this decision in 20 years? Or you know, I'm at the end of my life on my deathbed, will I wish I had done this, done this brave thing? Mm -hmm. Or will I take the, you know what I mean? So I think it can help us in life when we're aware of our own death. The uh, courage came up a lot for me when, and we'll explore the structure a little more, but you, you step into places of loss that could be grief laden. You uh, step into um, what's happening in your marriage. You step into your relationship with your mother, having left the fundamentalist church. Um, you step into all of those places, but yet your book doesn't take on the air of past experience. It doesn't take on the air of grief for what has been lost. In fact, it takes on the optimism of change and the spiritual journey. And from that way, it was a seeker's memoir for me, not an exploration of your past experience. It was, in fact, uplifted by, look at all of these amazing ways that we can explore ourselves and the world, even though you were very frank and vulnerable about your loss experiences and even a little bit of regret. But I didn't get the sense that there is grief. In fact, I got the experience that you were airing on the glass half full of how much more time you still have. Not, and that was what you wrote in the book. I think you said something around, you have 10,000 more days. What am I going to do with those 10,000 days as opposed to what have I done with the much greater number that I've lived already. And I enjoyed that part about your book immensely because it felt uplifting. And in that way, it was a guidebook for me, an inspirational memoir for me. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you. And, you know, uh, what drove me to write this book? Well, there, you know, I was curious about spiritual practices. I, I wanted to engage in them. It was kind of my midlife adventure to go out and do these things. Yeah. Um, but I was suffering too. Uh, I mean, I think we all we all have loss. We all suffer. You cannot get to midlife without some kind of trauma or loss or grief. And it's how do you, where do you put it? How do you contain that grief? I just read this beautiful memoir uh, by 
um, Don Gilmore about his brother's suicide called To the River. And uh, it had an amazing line in it, growing older is an education and loss. And that really resonated for me. I'm I'm 58 and um, I still feel 19 in my head, but somehow I'm 58, almost 60. I'm in the final third, you know, of my life. And, and there is loss. And, um, you know, I was struggling with two primary relationships in my life. And I think a lot of women, and if you have male listeners, them too, uh, my partner and my mother, uh, you know, the two primary, other than my children, the two most significant relationships you can have with a parent and with a partner. I'd been estranged from my mother, uh, whom I would had been very close to when I was young because of leaving the church and she was very disapproving and disappointed about it. And it affected our relationship to the point where we stopped talking. And um, I'd been married a long time to a wonderful person, but the marriage had run out of steam and there were issues. And, you know, it was like, what do I do? Do I stay in something that's, you know, not really working anymore for the sake of staying or do I be brave and make a change? And so a part of my journey was trying to come to an answer Um, you know, and I think a lot of women I've talked to struggle with this. Should I stay or should I go? What should I do? Um, And it's very, very difficult. And although we had a very amicable, I mean, I write about how we separated in the book. We love our children deeply. We still care for each other. I would say we've had one of the most amicable amicable separations that I've ever heard of because we worked at it. It's still very painful uh, when you anticipate being with one person until your dying day and then the script changes there's that loss of the future that you anticipated having even at my age you know almost 60 Mm -hmm. um you know uh this was supposed to be the reaping the rewards you know the mortgage is paid off the children are launched this is a time to you know and um it's it's separation is very difficult and and it is a loss but it is one that uh can still hopefully if the two people are decent to each other be done with some sort of affection and care especially if you have children i know so many people where it's been so acrimonious and the children get caught up in it and have to choose sides and that is the last thing i ever want with my kids and i'm fortunate that my ex-partner um you know is someone i'm able to have a good friendship with and who's a great father so but you know it's it's not um it's still difficult you know it's still a loss it is definitely a theme you know in the in our conversation today moving you know when you start moving away from something that no longer fits there is a loss and there is a separation that comes from you know where you were whether it's the community of your faith and or your your family or your partner when you start to it takes courage you know you were i think we've talked about that already as well to make these kinds of changes and i often find it very dismissive when people think these things are easy decisions exactly you know people say oh people get divorced so easily these days no it's it's it is not easy and sometimes the easiest thing is to stay in something that is not working because Mm -hmm. it's easy and it's you know it's it's so, far easier uh, to stay it, yeah. it, it, did, it did take uh some doing and my year of living spiritually the things that i did really helped to fortify me to be able to do it in a way for both of us that was that was okay one of the most amazing gifts that has come from this book is that my mother and i have reconciled um you know, as she read the book, I gave her the manuscript beforehand. I did not anticipate that she would be in the book as much as she was, 
You know, you set yes. out to write a memoir and it takes you into unexpected places. Although I had, a, you know, I had each chapter, I knew what I was going to be writing about. I had a skeleton, I had a draft. I thought this is the path I'm going to go. And then I would start writing about my mother and I look back on her early life and I really did some research and talked to people and I thought about her life. You know, she was married at 17 on her 17th birthday, had me a week after her 18th birthday. My biological father left her four years later. I was three. My brother was nine months old. She was a single parent. She was on welfare. She was an amazing mom. And she really struggled. And, um, you know, I got a stepfather when I was nine. And uh, I left the church when I was 20. And there was this disappointment from her. But I always loved my mother. It's just religion seemed to get in the way. Um, and after I, so I gave her the manuscript and she was in it quite a bit. And I thought, you know, she might never speak to me again after reading it uh, because there was a lot of love in it for her, but there were also, you know, she felt at mm -hmm. times she told me I was going to hell, you know, not something yes. you want to hear from your mother. And, um, she read it and she, she called me the next morning. She'd stayed up all night and read it. And she never has really said if she likes it or dislikes it, but she did say to me that morning, I, I love you. And I hadn't heard that in a long time. Wow. And since then, we have rebuilt our relationship. And it's gone back to the way it was when I was 19. I can't believe it. Um, and she did say to me, sometimes we have to agree to disagree. So she was yes. able to finally say that. My stepfather had died a couple years before. And I think, you know, maybe his death made her realize, you know, we only have so much time left. And are we going to spend it not speaking to each other? So it's been a wonderful thing. I love my mother dearly. Um, she is a great joy in my life. And I'm sad that we missed a decade, but I'm happy to have that relationship back. And that was completely unexpected. So um, I feel really lucky about that. She did ask That's for a lovely. copy of my book to give to a friend of hers, which is the closest ah. she's come to, you know, <laughs> the closest she's come to. Kind of, and she did call me to correct me on a couple of things. Excellent. Uh, small, some small details. And then as we were talking before the book was published, she told me some more stuff about her early life that surprised me, some challenges that she had and difficulties that I, I never knew anything about. You know, it's so interesting when we think about our parents, especially our mothers. So many of us have a hang-up about our mothers, right? Like everyone's on the couch because of their mother. If the father was generally benign and nice, that's enough. But mothers, we have to be perfect. And I think we Indeed. don't often look at our mother's life um, and the complexities yes. of her life and the secrets mm -hmm. of her life. I mean, our mothers are our mothers to us, but they are complete and whole women unto themselves that we often never get a glimpse at. So in my book, I really tried to go back and, and look at my mother's life and the challenges that she had and and how she managed all that and to look at her as a woman not just my mother who owed me this but you right. know the struggles that she went through and often we never know that about our mothers uh you know all those mothers yeah, i i look yeah i so look forward to us exploring that almost as a, a mm -hmm. separate topic because the three of us really connect over that but you know yes. when you said the, the highest possible praise was your mother you know asking for a copy to give to someone let's just say that will never happen first of all my mother's passed away but that would not be something my mother would be asking for uh, when it comes to my memoir so as you say you never know where it's going to go which right. as a writer makes me want to step into asking you about to read for us uh, because you the treehouse moment I remember 
Um, because I think these conclusions, compassion, and the decisions like wanting to think about your mother differently, wanting answers about your, your birth father, those are the kinds of things that solitude bring for us. And I, I felt that deeply during your treehouse time, that those were, there was a, a catharsis to that treehouse time where I think you reckoned with the, maybe I've thought about it um, too black and white. Maybe I only see it through my lens and I could see it through her lens. That was an important uh, epiphanic minute, minute for me, let's say weekend for you, but uh, it was an important moment for me personally in the book. I really related to that. Yeah, I think it is really helpful to look, uh, think about our parents as people and the struggles that they had. And it's usually not about mm-hmm. us, you know. Um, right. you know. The reason that millions of women were addicted to Valium in the 60s, <laughs> you know, they had unhappy lives and sometimes uh, limited lives. <laughs> and our mothers were of yes. that generation where they did not get to uh, often go to university or have a full career or just pursue their interests. They were our slaves, essentially, domestic slaves. Yes, yes. So, um, you know, they didn't get to be fulfilled in, in all the ways. You know, they didn't get to listen to podcasts like this one, right? So a little compassion, I think. I found more compassion for my mother. This piece about the mm. treehouse is a little bit of a lighter bit from the book. I do have some heavier moments. Okay. This is a bit of a, a light. And I was very inspired by uh, throughout my spiritual journey by Henry David Thoreau, who... Uh, in the late uh, mid-1800s, went to live in a small cabin in the woods. His benefactor was Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous philosopher who had some money and allowed him to live in the cabin. Um, And he just uh, spent his time in nature. Um, And so this was my little Walden, you know, Thoreau experiment. Can you tell the readers where you're reading from in case they wanted to look it up in the book as well? What chapter? Each chapter in my book is divided into a month. Uh, So it starts with January and ends in December. And each chapter has a theme. In April, it was called The Quiet Center. And I did some experiments in solitude, including um, going to this treehouse. Thoreau lived in his cabin for two years, two months, and two days. My three days and two nights are paltry in comparison. Still, I've untethered myself from digital distractions. No TV, computer, or tablet, not even a radio. Birdsong will be my playlist. The view of the swaying pines outside the windows, my screen time. My phone is on standby in case of emergency, but I do not allow myself any texting, messaging, phone calls, or random Google searches. It feels like a Quaker boot camp. Thoreau advocated for having as few possessions as possible. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone, he wrote in Walden. I haul a knapsack, small suitcase, a cooler, book bag, hiking gear, box of dry goods, and cosmetic case. Yes, I've brought a blow dryer. Up the steps of the tree <laughs> I'm sure the great naturalist who mocked those who, quote, can hardly venture to go a huckleberrying without taking a medicine chest along, unquote, would disapprove of my inability to pack light. Nevertheless, I commit to spending my time much as Thoreau did, hiking, reading, journaling, and daydreaming. I pack a small knapsack for a long walk in the woods. I come upon a screened-in gazebo where I while away several afternoon hours with a book in my lap, something I haven't done in years, until a liquid drowsiness pours over me and I head back to the treehouse, climb to the loft bed, and settle into a drooling, intoxicating slumber. When I awake, there's nothing to do but read some more. The branches of the evergreens outside the window glimmer in the sunlight, seeming to offer up lush applause as if saying, good for you. I have no deadlines, no demands on my time, and no dishes to clean, except a single fork and plate. 
plate. Nobody needs me, and it feels great. Meals mark the morning, noon, and evening. I make a simple dinner of comfort food, Campbell's tomato soup and a tuna sandwich, taking my time mashing the fish, adding a teaspoon of mayonnaise, cutting an onion fine, adding celery salt, pepper, and a dash of curry. I savor it as if it were a four-star feast. I think of all the time-consuming meals I've made for my family, over 30 years of marriage and 20 years of parenting. I did the math once. It came to 10,000 meals. Mostly, I was happy to do this. I pureed baby food, marinated tofu, tofu, and peeled potatoes. I sent my daughters to school with sandwiches wrapped in neatly folded wax paper. I lit candles every night at dinner because I believed the supper hour held special curative powers that would both bond our clan and keep vitamin deficiency at bay. But sometimes I hated it too. I hated it when no one came to the table when I repeatedly hollered, Dinner! like a fishwife from the bottom mm. of the stairs. I hated it when my kids argued practically every single night about doing the dishes. Once my husband put a pizza in the oven upside down and what I took as a pur purposeful act of culinary sabotage so that I'd stop asking him for help. I wanted my family to pitch in, but it was tough to convince them since I'd done everything for years. I was the one who continued to cut up apple slices for my kids as a bedtime snack well into puberty. I was the one who elbowed my husband out of the way when he burned the eggs. Sometimes I wonder if I spent too much of my life in front of the stove. I'm not a fancy cook. I've never made risotto. Essentially, I've prepared the same seven dinners for decades, but I rarely missed a meal. In my mind, I was a great and powerful mag magician, Oz in an apron, waving a spatula so the smell of home cooking wafted through the house, a protective potion against the ills of the world. I don't think my children will remember much about my food when they leave home. I don't have a signature dish like my mother's seven-layer salad or my mother's mother-in-law's beef bourguignon, but I hope they'll carry with them a sense of belonging that comes from having a seat at the table and nourishment from more than the mashed potatoes. The philosopher Emerson said, I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I have eaten. Even so, they have made me. Oh, thank you, Anne Bookma, reading from My Year of Living Spiritually. Uh, that's a, a piece of thinking that Anne did when she was in a treehouse near Port Perry, Ontario. Much intrigued to hear more about that. But as always, I have method in my madness. I uh, have to explore the structure of the memoir a little bit because I think your skill as well as perhaps your publisher's editorial prowess is uh, so invigorating in this for a geek like me where we have the memoir-esque portions. We have your journalistic lens in some places. You take us into the social, the social trends of our time as well as the writers about those. You weave spiritual exploration like crystals, energy medicine, choirs, silent retreating, death cafes, and magic mushrooms into social trends and resources. I, I found myself writing down a resource list as I went. Your book was one I had to take notes on, and that doesn't always happen when I'm reading memoir. The structure is intricate because you also are exploring um, personal, present, and past, as well as, I think, projecting a little bit into the future. And I wondered for you, structurally, how mindful were you and how organic was it that you, as a journalist, I know this would be your tendency anyway to plan, but as a memoirist was the tendency to plan, were you intentionally being organic? Can you talk to us a little bit about that structure? Because it really is a wonder and it's one that I'm 
assure a lot of our memoir teaching friends are going to be speaking about the structure of your memoir being so intricate. Well, I am a type A person, <laughs> and I've been a journalist for 30 years, so very little is organic, I have to say. Uh, I plan things out very carefully. Uh, I just finished a feature, as I mentioned, about women, uh, midlife women and drinking, and I probably had uh, 25,000 words of notes, 10 interviews, you know, reams of articles for research, and that's how I approach my book. Each chapter, I almost approach like a very long magazine article where I had yes. interviews, I had my own thoughts, I had research. And um, what I do is take all of that. So when I wrote about, you know, if I did a chapter about the quiet center, about solitude, I researched everything about solitude. I did solitude experiments. I examined my own feelings about solitude versus loneliness. And for each chapter, I sort of did a draft of all the key points that I wanted to hit. Um, and then I would begin to write it. Um, the overall, every memoir needs a container, right? You know, you, mm -hmm. it's, it's not an autobiography like I was born and then I got older. You know, it's not, it's not a linear thing like that. You need a container, whether it's, um, you know, if it's a memoir about grief, it's about that period of grief. Um, if it's a memoir about, you know, well, in my case, it's a year of. So it was very clear that I would do it month by month. You know, I would take the reader through a year of me doing these uh, different experiments. Once I um, had the year format, that came very quickly. I knew I was going to do this all in a year's time. Then it was a matter of the challenge of how do I create the chapters? And so, oh, yes. um, yeah, so once I had the chapters figured out, so I knew I wanted to write about death. I knew I wanted to write about solitude. I wanted to write about uh, music. You know, I wanted to write about nature. So I took the overarching themes, the most crucial things that I, I wanted to include in the book. Um, you know, the idea of pilgrimage, um, you know, community, finding my tribe. The tripping chapter is about magic mushrooms and holotropic breathwork, which are both psychedelic experiences that blew my mind. <laughs> so once I had those yes. chapters figured out and I had the structure of the book, uh, then yes. I just I knew exactly what I had to do. I just went chapter by chapter. But having the overall structure is what really helped me get to work on this. And I had to write it. I had eight months to write it. Um, about 20% right. of it was already written because it was part of a blog. And I pretty much devoted eight full months to writing it. I, I, I put aside my regular assignments so that I could focus on this book. And, you know, organic, yes. I mean, things always come up. You think yeah. you're going to write about something. Right. Uh, I did not realize my mother would be in it so much. You know, my childhood, um, my biological father who left the family, mm -hmm. my stepfather, my feelings about yes. parenting. Uh, so there were always moments. Your, your brother? Did, was, the, was the brother That's completely organic, Tim? No, I, I, I didn't know if I would include him or not. But my, my, I found it when I was 50 that I had a brother living in the States who had been a baseball player for the Boston Red Sox. He was 50 years old, quite an interesting man. I went down to visit him and my father had left his family as well. He never knew his father. So we had that bond in common, even though we're quite different people. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was an exercise in going into the past, but really trying to look forward. So I find always with writing, it's, it, you know, people think you yes. have to have it all mm -hmm. figured out before you sit down. You don't. You just need a you basic don't. premise, uh, overarching kind of skeleton. And it's the actual act of writing that leads to insights and Right. Um, that can lead to, you know, unexpected journeys. And you have to be willing right. to sort of take that 
uh, detour as you're writing and follow it a little bit. Yeah. You know, there's this great... And that, that detour, yeah. I'm glad you said detour because that's something Sandy and I were speaking about, about her own writing. And I'm going to, you know, <laughs> bop her on the nose on this one. But I was, she was waiting saying, for Does it. it I, I know. It was like, is it going to feel like this? And I said, listen, of the 50 or 100 writers that I've worked with in the last couple of years, the detours are the moments when we're not sure, is this writing or is the working to the plan the writing part? And I say it's all the writing. And I, I wondered as a, as a bookie and as a person who writes memoir proposals for a living, I wondered what you had to write about that you didn't originally plan to. And was there an experience that somehow was, was triggered as a tendril that came off of something else that you decided to include in the book? And I guess what I'm asking is, did something surprise you by saying, oh, I have to try that. That'll be great for the book. Oh, many times, many times. And I so agree with what you say about uh, detours. I mean, if we go on a road trip and we take a detour, it can lead into something wonderful. Uh, some detours have yes. that end. You know, sometimes there were things Very I, true. you know, I just like, nah, it's not going to work. <laughs> um, and, you know, my, my thing about, you know, if you have a plan and you want to write something and then there's all these detours, how do you decide if you should stay on the main road or take mm -hmm. a detour? My answer to that, to that is follow the energy. If that detour is pulling at you, there's a reason. Follow it and listen yes. to it. So what energy, if, you know, if, that is, if it energizes you to write about that particular experience, it's yes. calling you. You need to write about it. Yeah. Um, in terms of surprises for me, you know, revealing um, stuff about my marriage, you know, I didn't know if I would really want to get into all that. And, and I was careful with it, but I felt it was important. And I tried to be as honest as I could without, you know, sharing so much. But um, and, and uh, really examining my mother's early life. Uh, yes. and, and, you know, I, I found myself really compelled to understand those key relationships and my role in them. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I really tried to, to be as complete as I could, you know, about those relationships. Yeah. I, and I think as, as we move sort of towards wrap up, if, if your commentary unknowingly on memoir writing and on nonfiction writing is, uh, I'm so grateful for it because you, your book includes so much without being apologetic for how demanding it can be. You know, if someone just wants to read it as a guidebook for spiritual practices, I suppose that they could, but it does tick a lot of boxes in terms of genre and topic and exploration. And it, um, had you not followed some detours, I think it would be less meaningful for you, but it would be less satisfying for us. It's a very satisfying read for the cure for the curious. And as a deep introvert, I will not try 21 of those 24 <laughs> experiences quite likely. So I was happy to, as you describe yourself uh, as the big E extrovert, I was so happy to follow you down those paths as well as to enjoy the way you structured it because I would just learn enough. You would just go into another writer. You went into Bronnie Ware. You went into uh, 15 writers that I knew, Gabor Mate, all of those places that I possibly haven't explored. So it was a really juicy read and I could feel that you had followed your own energy and found it fascinating for you too. I was as a mm. as a lesson in writing. I think your book is a is a tremendous gift. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Uh, you know, uh, I am completely fascinated by memoirs. Uh, that's practically all I read. 
Um, and Isaac Dennison, who wrote Out of Africa, she mm -hmm. has this great quote, yeah. all, all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story. Maya mm -hmm. Angelou said much the same thing. Uh, there is no greater agony than an untold story inside you. Right. So I feel that we are a story. Richard Wagami said we are a story. That's what we are. That's all we are. That's, we are our stories. Oh, the and the yes. act of putting it down on paper and people responding to it, to me, is incredible. I mean, I wrote this book because it was in me, but people have responded to it. And I'm so thankful for that. And I, myself, um, uh, you know, I do a storytelling event in Hamilton called The Six Minute Memoir, in which people tell a true life personal tale um, in six minutes or less. The next one's being held on September 25th. I don't know when your podcast is coming out. And over eight years, 300 people have gotten up and told their story in six minutes or less, usually transformative, powerful tales. And I've just Gorgeous. launched a writing workshop series called The Six Minute Memoir. Um, my October series is sold out, but there's one in November. And it's three parts. And the idea is for 12 people, for me to help them craft a story. And in the third session, we share it with each other because I do think uh, there is nothing more uh, holy than sharing our story and being seen and heard. Um, mm -hmm. So in addition to the six-minute memoir, there was a resource I saw on your website that I thought really worked well with your book, and it was the resource for a book discussion for a book club. And I think, you know, there's a, we've interviewed a lot of memoir writers, and I think your book would be a great resource for a book club. And those questions... And the ability to pull out some of those conversations around death and around spirituality and to share our, share the stories, I think, would be uh, fantastic. So if any of our listeners have book clubs or are thinking of starting one, I would recommend this book. I think this would be a great place to start. And you also have an offer to pop in on a Zoom call with book clubs if they're... Yes interested so yes, why don't you tell us about that uh, yeah i've been invited to quite a few book clubs uh through zoom and i'm always happy to talk about my book providing we can find a date that works for all of us what i usually suggest is that the book club folks talk about my book without me there yes <laughs> and yeah. then I'll join in, i join in on the last hour because then they can be honest about what they think and talk about it and it is a great book if i could say so for book club because yes people will talk about the religious experience they grew up with or the spiritual experience or what they believe or what they th and you know often these women find out new things about each other because it, it does go kind of deep right it talks about uh, death and, and all of that but there's also a lot of lighthearted stuff in it too so I've really enjoyed um, uh, being part of zoom book clubs and I do have book club discussion questions on my site and I would like reader uh, followers of yours to know that um, it's sometimes difficult to get my book, you know, for people to get out to bookstores during COVID. And if you yes. have any difficulty, I will mail it to you. It's $25, yes. but I'm waiving the $5 and 50 cent shipping charge during COVID. So people often will write to me and I can describe it to you and pop it in the mail to you. So I'm happy to do that. Just go to my website and bookma.com bookma with one O. 
Right. That's great. The, uh, finally, those were, you stepped into our, our finalizing some of our end up questions, but I wanted to say that, um, and I, I often do this, forgive me, um, people who are online, please have a look at Anne Book Must Cover. I always rave about a beautifully designed book cover and certainly yours is uh, stunning. The appearance of the swallow on your cover as well as some other elements are giveaways to people who haven't read the book, who little, little teasers. But I got to tell you, as a writer and a Canadian writer at that, the list of rave reviews on your cover is uh, unprecedented. Um, Jane Christmas, who's a friend to Reframe Your Life, but also Martha Beck, who's a New York Times bestseller and has written myriad books. Her One of her books, Expecting Adam, was quite an inspiration for me. Uh, Lives of Saints, I'm sure, is one that uh, resonated yes. for you. But tell us about well, you, your publisher, how so many writers raved about your book in advance. I'd love to hear more about that. You can tell us the Martha Beck story if you'd like. Yes. Well, I did tell you I'm a type A. <laughs> <laughs> so I do my homework. And uh, there were a list of writers that I compiled. Um, so for any memoirist uh, wanting to know how do you get book testimonials, I reached out to people who most of them I didn't know, um, who I thought would be interested in the kind of stuff I was writing about and that was maybe somehow related to what uh, they've done. And two of those people, one, Martha Beck, who's a, a columnist for Oprah Magazine um, and a New York Times bestseller, amazing writer. And uh, I reached out to her. I wrote her a personal, a long personal letter, letting her know how influential her memoir, Leaving the Saints, was for yes. me because she wrote that many years ago and she wrote about the trials of leaving her Mormon religion and how she was estranged from her family and that book yes. helped me and I let her know that and I told her I've written a book also about leaving fundamentalist religion so I think you can't randomly ask people to blurb your book it takes a lot of effort to read a book I mean Martha Beck's a busy person sure yeah, um, I also suggested selected chapters that she might want to read to make it easier for her. And I was thrilled with Great. what she said about my book. Mary Piper is another one. She's the um, author mm -hmm. of the New York Times bestseller, Women Rowing North and Reviving Ophelia. Reviving Ophelia yes. is about uh, bringing up daughters to be confident young women. Women Rowing North, she wrote about 30 years later about aging women and how mm -hmm. there's so much to life, you know, so much for us to still explore and be vital at this stage of life. So I wrote to Mary, letting her know that her book Reviving Ophelia was instrumental in how I parented my daughters and also how Women Rowing North, her latest book, um, inspired me to feel good about getting older. So, you know, writing right. is acknowledging their work and their impact on you will get their attention and then hopefully they like your sure. book. Right. Great. And one of our wrap up questions, which I'm kind of edging into now, and maybe we could wrap up with this is what are you working on now? What are you working on next? Well, <laughs> um, I am really, you know, I love doing the six-minute memoir. It's a total volunteer effort. I've been doing it for six years, for eight years, several times a year, getting 12 people on a stage to share personal stories from their life. So I am continuing with that, but I am, I've offered these new six-minute memoir writing workshops because I love working with small groups of people to help them mm -hmm. tell their story, and I, I feel that's a calling. So I've launched a writing series and I'm also uh, because I have 300 of these amazing stories that have been told over the years I'm working on a proposal for my uh, publisher uh, to put together an anthology of six-minute memoir stories so these are thousand word stories right. of a transformative 
you know, event in someone's life and the learnings that they got from it. I think these stories deserve to live on paper mm -hmm. longer. So I'm working on a proposal for that and also a podcast to get these stories on air. Uh, I'm also a journalist, so I'm continuing to do journalism. Um, do I have another book in me? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, I, did have this, I did have this idea of, a, I have a title, I don't have a book, but I have a title, The 60-Year-Old Runaway Wife, about a woman who um, <laughs> leaves her 30-year marriage, she's 60 years old, and she travels the world in search of adventure. <laughs> I love <laughs> that. I, I would, but I'd great. only read it, I would never do it. I think it's <laughs> too a to do it. <laughs> a large demographic, about uh, post-60 uh, adventures for women. I think there's still lots of living to be done. I agree. Uh, well, with that, we do always ask it, what your favorite memoir is. And you said you love memoirs. So I, I think our listeners would really miss out on having you answer that question. I almost exclusively read memoir. I have so many. Uh, I'm just finishing uh, Megan O'Rourke's The Long Goodbye about yes. grieving the death of her mother to cancer. And it's a beautiful a memoir. Beautiful memoir on grief, and I've learned a lot. I, I lost a friend three months ago. It's not the same as losing your mother, but um, we are all grieving the loss of our friend and, and the different shapes that grief can take. I find it quite fascinating. My yes. most favorite uh, memoir writer is Mary Carr. She's written at least three <laughs> memoirs, The Liars Club, um, Cherry, Lit. and Lit, which is my favorite. Lit. And it deals with growing up in a hard scrabble Texan family. Her parents were kind of crazy. She had an addiction to alcohol, um, numerous love affairs and complications, the most beautiful writer. And she actually yes. has a book out called mm -hmm. The Art of Memoir, which I've read and I highly recommend yeah. that to, uh, to anyone. And, and it I makes me laugh out loud. She's mm -hmm. so funny. She's so funny. She's so smart. She's incredible. And I'm also a big fan of Danny Shapiro, who has quite a yes. few memoirs and her latest is called inheritance and she finds out that her father was a sperm donor not the father she thought he was so lots of great stuff oh that's yeah. great thank you absolutely thank you thank you thank you so much for having me yes and um i think we've covered where where unless you want to say anything else about where people can reach you your website uh social media that you like to hang out on sure. anything can like I, that yeah can i do that yeah so uh i always love to hear from readers and uh you know give share your thoughts about my book or sometimes people want to know more uh you can reach me at annbookma.com that's bookma with one o and you can also find out more about the six minute memoir storytelling event my six minute memoir writing series and uh, you can also buy my book through my website just um you can just email me through that and i'd love to i've always loved to hear from readers and and be connected i'm also mm -hmm. on facebook mostly Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you, Anne Bookman. Yes. yes. Thank, you. Thank you. Hi, it's Sandy here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reframe Your Life. If you've been enjoying our episodes and the interviews that we've been bringing you each week, we'd appreciate it if you would help us get the word out about our podcast. The best way is to share it with a friend and leave a review for us where you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about my work, you can find me at sandyreynolds.com. I have a special PDF file available with my newsletter for anyone who struggled with people pleasing. And if you're interested in finding out more about the writing process and crafting your own memoir, check out Patty M. Hall.
www.thepowerofthenewsletter.com. And thank you for listening.